Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the blessing of being alive today. We thank you for the blessing of your word and that you have good plans to give us a hope and a future, plans that you want to reveal to us, plans that you have revealed, plans that you are revealing right now, and we just want to be open to that. Would you please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, guide us, shape and direct our thoughts this morning that we would be thinking not just along the level of human wisdom, but that we would be thinking along the lines of, of the heart and mind of God. Please guide us into truth, not just for information's sake, but guide us into truth, the truth. His name is Jesus. May the things that we read be living words today. We pray in Jesus' saving and precious name, let the family say, Amen. Amen. All right. Go with me to 2 Peter. This is part four of our Stir in Me series. Part four of a desire to just allow the word of God to stir in us, wake us up from any spiritual slumber we may be experiencing. 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When you're there, go ahead and say, I've found it. Okay, 2 Peter comes right after 1 Peter, if you're still looking. <laughs> See what I did there? Okay, never mind. <laughs> Second Peter chapter 1. And the very first word, it's but. All right. In other words, what Peter is about to share is in contrast. It's, in, it's almost like a, a, a break in his train of thought. He's about to launch into something that stands in contrast to his previous train of thought where he was talking about the reliability of his eyewitness account, where he was talking about the trustworthiness of the more sure word of prophecy. Whatever it is that he's going to share, is, it's standing in contrast to all of that. So let's read it. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, the Bible says, and I'm reading from the New King James. It says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among who? among us, among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on them swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber." Them fighting words, okay? I don't know. So in, in other presentations, I don't think I've shared this here, but every now and then I will present um, a seminar or a workshop on evangelism styles, right? Because not everybody reaches out. Not everybody connects with other people in the same way that I do or in the same way that you do, right? There's Just like there are spiritual gifts in the body of Christ, there are evangelistic styles, I would say. And, um, you know, there, there's a there's a you know, intellectual style, there's an invitational style, there's a, um, there's a service style, testimonial style, you know, all these things, but there's also a confrontational style. And exhibit A for confrontational style of evangelism would be Peter, I would say. And here's where Peter's confrontational side to him kind of comes out. He's getting pretty straightforward here, right? And he's pointing out that among God's people, there would be a rise of false teaching. There would be a rise of false teachers, just as surely as there were false prophets in the Old Testament, there are false teachers even in the New Testament church. And the standout characteristics that we gather from these first three verses here, well, apparently these teachers and their ideas are 
one, secretive, like they're not just going to come out and say, hey, I'm false, pay attention to me, right? They're secretive. There's a stealthy dynamic. The word itself, uh, when it's talking about secretly bringing in destructive heresies, it talks about, or the idea is that it, they're ideas that come alongside unnoticed. And that's why Peter feels the need to actually call it out. So these are secretive ideas, but it's also pervasive. Did you notice that? I think it's in verse 2. It says, and many will follow. In other words, many will imitate these false teachers. It's not just going to be, you know, over here, a select few, but really it'll infiltrate sometimes in ways that we're not even aware of. And the last thing I would say is that it's not only secretive and pervasive, but these, these false teachings are destructive. Let's be very clear about that. They're very destructive. That's why he calls it in verse 1, destructive heresies. And in verse 2, he says, many will follow their destructive ways. And the word is really capturing this idea of not just something that hurts and harms, but something that truly destroys to the extent of perishing to eternal ruin and loss. In other words, in Peter's mind, the stakes are very high. Do you feel that? I mean, this is why he's so urgent about being clear and upfront. Well, the question may, may be asked, well, what is so destructive about these ideas that are not in line with truth? What, what, I mean, can't ideas just be thrown out there without creating much harm? Well, Peter understands that what's so destructive is that it leads to the denial of Jesus. Let's read it again in verse 1. It says, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. And notice this line, even denying the Lord who bought them. Even denying the Lord who bought them. Put yourself in Peter's shoes just for a moment. Can you see why Peter gets so riled up about the possibility of denying Jesus? He's been there. He's done that. He's speaking from firsthand experience that denying Jesus leads to eternal loss and ruin. He's been on that side where he knows the pain of denying Jesus, not just to himself, but to the heart of God. And he wants to do all in his power to guard us from ever walking down that same road. For those of you who are parents, maybe you, you know um, that you get riled up when you see your young ones making mistakes that maybe you've made in the past. Yeah? There are times where I've um, maybe been taken as a little too harsh uh, about something that doesn't seem so significant, but every now and then, you know, our kids and I, when we're, when we're out and about and going on trails and stuff, we'll, we'll find a portion of the trail that's downhill and my kids, you know, they just like to move and they'll just get going right away, going downhill, not just walking or speed walking, but full, full tilt running downhill. And um, I might be seen as a joy kill because I'll immediately yell out, stay in control, okay? Watch yourself, slow it down. It's because when I was growing up, you know, I, I spent many of my summers going to this tennis club where, um, where I'd be in tennis clinics and stuff. And uh, part of the conditioning training for our, our summer tennis camp was to go off into some of the foothills there by the tennis club, and we would run up this probably 100, 200-yard stretch of incline. 
you know? I mean, it's nothing crazy like, you know, the Manitou Springs incline here or anything like that down in Colorado Springs. But for us, for us Bakersfieldians in California, Central Valley, this was significant. It was a big hill, okay? And so we'd run up this, and, you know, the, the tennis instructor would say, first one up gets a, a cherry Pepsi or whatever. And uh, so we'd all be motivated to get up there. I was never, I mean, I came close. But there were older kids that would always get up there first. And um, I don't know, maybe it was a compensation thing, but I wanted to get down first. And so one occasion, I was coming down, and I was coming down quick. I passed my brother. <laughs> I passed his, you know, his classmate as well. And I was just full on going downhill. And I realized very quickly that I was not in control. And only by the grace of God, like I look back at that and I feel like there is an angel who just taught me how to do a baseball slide real quick and press down, you know, and I, I came to a stop at the edge of this, you know, another straight stretch. And at the bottom of that was this huge boulder and things. And I just really felt like God just spared me in that moment. And so ever since, when I see someone running downhill, I get really worked up. <laughs> I say, hey, hold, you know, slow it down, turbo, right? And, um, and these are strong cautions because of my past negative experiences. And I feel like Peter is just getting, getting on the edge of his seat, saying, do you know what you're headed towards? This is not ground you want to walk. And so, yes, the denial of the Lord can lead to eternal ruin, but here is Peter on the other side of repentance, right? Praise God that Peter is someone who has experienced grace and that he has been snatched and plucked from the fire of denying Jesus. He's experienced God's grace and mercy. And he's actually spent much of his ministry trying to lead others to that road of repentance back from denying Jesus. I mean, you think back to Acts chapter 2, Peter's first public sermon that's recorded on the day of Pentecost, and he's preaching to people, hey, you just crucified the Messiah, right? He's confronting them with the truth, but he's leading them to repentance. And in the following chapter, Acts chapter 3, on Solomon's porch, people are paying attention to what Peter and John are doing because they just healed a lame man who was begging, uh, you know, at the, at the steps of, the, of, the, of Solomon's porch there, and and Peter is saying, wait, 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 wait. Don't you remember what just happened here? And actually, let's just quote this. Uh, second, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 3, verse 14. He's telling them straight up, this is what you did. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And then this is his appeal later on in that sermon. Repent, therefore, and be converted. Do you realize what Peter is saying? He's saying, walk the road that I just walked. I know a man that I denied, but he was the son of God, and he came to my shore and called me to follow him anyway. And Peter's saying, repent and be converted. This is the experience that I had. You can have it too, that your sins may be blotted out. And so here's Peter, who has spent much of his ministry trying to lead people back from the destruction of denial to the experience of repentance and God's saving grace. And here in this letter, he will continue to do just the same, right? So what Peter wants us to know as we shift focus here in chapter two, he wants us to know a couple of things. 
First of all, that the great controversy, you know, the battle between good and evil, between Christ and Satan, that great controversy is very real. And the stakes are really high. You know, if the Holy Spirit moves upon holy men, like we read in chapter 1, the Holy Spirit moved upon holy men to speak and to give us the light of the prophetic word, that prophetic word that is more sure, that prophetic word that is certain and confirmed. Well, if the Holy Spirit does all of this to give us truth, to give us the light of his word, then just as surely as that, there is that much activity on the side of darkness to move upon men, to give false prophecy, to give false teaching, to lead others to a denial of Jesus and eternal ruin. Peter wants us to know, hey, the great controversy is real. Yes, God is actively at work, but there is a darkness that is at work as well. And the other thing he wants us to know in verse 3, it's actually stated at the very end. It says, for a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. Peter wants us to be certain as he's shifting gears here. That whatever judgment is coming against evil and evildoers, that's not idle. It's not asleep. <laughs> what, what, is, what does Peter actually mean by this? Maybe you're asking. Maybe we could put it like this. False teachers are going to get what's coming to them. That's what, that's what Peter's saying. And really, again, this is the confrontational side of Peter, but really this is a parallel truth to the hope and certainty of Jesus' return. Right? It's a parallel truth. In other words, if it's true that Jesus is coming to save us from sin, that means it is also true that Jesus is coming to destroy sin. Yeah? It's a parallel truth. In fact, this will, we'll get more into this in chapter 3. But in chapter 3, Peter identifies that there are scoffers who question the reality of Jesus' return. Why? Because there's an apparent delay in that promise. Well, he hasn't come yet. So why should we expect him to actually come? There's, a, there's that question. And if that hope isn't real, if that delay is actually the reality that there's no promise to be fulfilled, then there's no accountability. There's no judgment for sin in the future either. That's what scoffers are essentially saying. That's what these false teachers are essentially presenting. But we know that we can lift up the trumpet, let loud, let it ring, because Jesus is coming again. Yeah, that hope is real. In fact, today, October 22 of 2022, we're what, 178 or so years post great disappointment, right? And we might look at that time span and say, that's a delay. Is this hope just a pie in the sky, penny in the fountain wish that has no grounding? No. No, my friends. If that is ever in doubt, just keep coming. We're going to get to 2 Peter chapter 3 next week, and that's exactly what he's explaining. But for now, he is addressing the certainty that God will judge falsehood, that God will bring an end to sin. And we'll get to that in just a moment here. And so 
as we're kind of getting into this, what Peter wants to do is now support his case. Starting in verse 4 on through 11, Peter is going to support his case that he, he is making, that the judgment is not idle, that destruction has not fallen asleep. Which, by the way, if you are in a position where you're needing to address scoffers or others' doubts, or maybe it's not others' doubts, maybe it's even your own doubts, what Peter does here is he basically reviews God's history. He reviews what he's done in the past as a trajectory of what he will do in the future. So if you're ever wondering, what, what is God up to? Just look at how he's dealt with these situations in the past. It's a reasonable approach, I would say, to anyone who um, you, know, you may be ministering to or even your own sense of doubt. But yeah, let's, let's take a look. Starting in verse 4, he gives three examples of ways God has dealt with judgment and how he's handled that. Starting in verse 4, here's what the Bible says. For if God did not spare who? The angels. Whoa. The angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Whoa. All right, so exhibit A, angels. Exhibit B, let's keep going. And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah. So now he's talking about those in the days of Noah. One of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. And verse 6, here's the third example. And turning the cities of where? Of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. All right, we're just going to pause right there. But so far, we've got three examples of how God deals with wickedness, right? How God deals with sinners. First example, angels who sinned. Wow, fallen angels. We read about them in, in Revelation chapter 12. They're depicted as a third of the stars that Satan took down with him. And they were cast where? According to Revelation 12, they were cast to the earth. Okay? They were chained to this. They were expelled from heaven. And though that, at that point, their judgment was real, but they were not destroyed. Do you follow me? Yes or no? Yeah? So their sentence was pronounced, but it wasn't fulfilled. Does that make sense? Yeah? They were chained to the darkness of this world, but they were reserved for final destruction later. In the second example, the antediluvian world, the, day, uh, the world in the days of Noah, pre-flood, they were also condemned, but their destruction did not come quickly. Do you hear that? They were condemned, but their destruction did not come quickly. In fact, in verse 5, there's a reference to Noah. He was a preacher of righteousness. Does anybody know how long Noah was actually preaching righteousness and repentance? 120 years. 120 years long. Noah was a building the ark as well as preaching for people to respond. And it could have been seen... It could have been seen that judgment appeared idle. I mean, can you imagine listening to Noah, watching Noah for four years? And what conclusion you would have drawn as you're walking your son? You know, hey, look at that thing. Listen to that guy. Just even after four years. How about after 40 years? It, it could have easily stirred up this sentiment that judgment was idle. 
that destruction was asleep. But judgment was not. Destruction came surely, albeit slowly, by all appearances. The third example that he uses. So he talks about the the angels, and then the ancient world, and then the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, another story that highlights the patience of God when he's dealing with sin. I love that about God. There's this phrase in the Old Testament, slow to anger. Have you heard that? Slow to anger. The Hebrew idea behind it, it's, it's actually literally the word picture is nostrils. Like his, his nostrils are large. <laughs> like when someone gets angry, you know, they kind of flare up a little bit. And God's nostrils are large. He can handle a lot. <laughs> And here in Genesis chapter 18, when you hear about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, I mean, really, the omniscient God had to already know the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. But in Genesis chapter 18, verses 20 and 21, he's depicted as actually coming down to see the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, as if he didn't already know. He was coming down to engage a slow and intentional process of investigative judgment before the execution of judgment. Even opening himself up to Abraham. Even opening himself up to being bargained with. To experiencing intercession, right? And and to some, God's patience and judgment, it could have been perceived as absence of judgment. But don't get it wrong. Just because God is patient in judgment doesn't mean that he's absent of judgment altogether. Still, in this case, God demonstrates himself willing to save, wanting to exhaust every possible option before destruction. Praise the Lord. Do you know the character of God today? He is one who is slow to anger and abounding in love and mercy. He may be slow to destruction. Why? Because he wants to exhaust every possible option for salvation. And it makes me wonder if Lot himself could have been, or sorry, could have been one of God's ways of reaching out to the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And unfortunately, it turned out to be a trial of torment for Lot himself to be there. One that he needed to be delivered from. Let's keep reading here, starting in verse 7. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. It says, And delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul. Man, I, I don't usually think of Lot as a righteous man, but apparently the Bible does. Um, I love the fact that righteousness isn't about what we do, but about God's perspective about us, right? Righteous lot, righteous man, righteous soul. So dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. And that's what, that's what Lot needed to be delivered from. And so now Peter is going to draw two conclusions. Notice verse nine. Then the Lord knows how to, number one, Deliver the godly out of temptations. Praise God. And number two, 
to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. All right, let's slow down here because this is where Peter's starting to stir us up. He wants to wake us up with these two critical reminders. The first one is this, that God knows how to deliver his people. Amen. He surely does. He knows how to deliver his people. The word for deliver there in verse 9, it has the idea of not just removing from danger, but removing and pulling to oneself. So it's delivering, not just delivering from, but delivering to. Okay? So God knows how to deliver us, pull us to himself. Whatever our trial, whatever our temptation, God is able to rescue us. Yes. And, and I would say this, that this is actually the good news about judgment. Yes, you heard me right. This is the good news about judgment. And it's simply this, that judgment is a rescue operation. I'll say amen to that. Okay, <laughs> judgment is a rescue operation. I don't know what you think or picture or feel when you even hear the idea or concept of God's judgment. But I want you to know that his primary intent in executing judgment is to rescue and save. That's his goal. I mean, and this is something that maybe we've, we've talked about a few times before, but just think about this. There is a whole book in the Bible called Judges, and there's stories of people who saved God's people. A judge was perceived as a deliverer. In biblical thought, judgment is about deliverance. God's judgment is primarily to seek and save and so God's, if that's his purpose, his purpose in judgment is saving us from what destroys us. And not just removing us from the danger, but pulling us to himself. That's the goal of judgment. And so when the first angel of Revelation chapter 14, verse 7 says, the hour of judgment is come, of course that's part of the everlasting gospel. Because it's time for God to save us and pull, him, pull us to himself. Oh, come on. <laughs> Yes! Right? Don't, don't be ashamed of the message that God has entrusted, the three angels' message that God has entrusted to this end-time movement. People need to know what? That there's time, time that is ticking, but it's time for God to save. And so stop resisting. Give him the green light. Oh, man. Okay, sorry. Get back to the notes. So God knows how to deliver his people. Praise the Lord. That's stirring reminder number one. Stirring reminder number two is this, that God knows how and when to put an end to evil. I'll say it again. God knows how and when to put an end to evil. There it is in verse 9, right? Let's read it again. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. I'm glad it's up to him. Sometimes I feel it were up, I, I would want it to be up to me, <laughs> but I'm glad it's up to him. Maybe you've had times where you feel like, man, God is doing nothing to check evil, to put an end to sin's curse. 
But I tell you, judgment is sure. If we've ever felt weary of sin's curse, if you've ever felt weary of the corruption, the hurt, and the trauma of this world, friends, let's take heart today. Because according to the Bible, evil has an expiration date. You know, and this is something that, that I believe that the Holy Spirit wants to assure us of. Uh, maybe, maybe you remember the, the passage in John chapter 16. Actually, let's go there quickly. So hold, hold your finger here in 2 Peter chapter 2. Go with me to John chapter 16. Sometimes we need this assurance that, yeah, uh, there is judgment to come. And I believe that the Holy Spirit, this is actually one of his primary objectives. He wants to stir this, impress this upon our hearts. John chapter 16, the Gospel of John chapter 16. When you're there, say, I found it. All right, John 16, because I think this is actually one of the overlooked roles of the Holy Spirit. John 16, verse 8. Verse 8, the Bible says, so Jesus is talking. He's talking about the coming of the helper, the comforter, the Holy Spirit. And he says, when he, the Holy Spirit, when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of what's the last thing? Of judgment. Of judgment. This is the, one of the, the primary or more, more specific descriptions of the role and work of the Holy Spirit. He convicts us of sin. He convicts us of our unbelief, our need of a Savior, so that we would turn to the Savior. Right? But not only that, He convicts us of righteousness. Notice in verse 10, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. In other words, the Holy Spirit directs us to Jesus as our righteousness. The one we can't see on the earth any longer, we look to him in heaven. And the last thing is that he convicts us of judgment. In verse 11, it says, of judgment, why? Because the ruler of this world is judged. In other words, the Holy Spirit assures us that evil will get what's coming. That evil will be judged. That the ruler of this world is a defeated foe though we haven't seen it in full as yet. And the Holy Spirit's role in our lives, when we feel anxious under the load of the world's, uh, you know, of, of sin's curse, and we feel like, man, it seems like the enemy is always getting the upper hand. The Holy Spirit wants to bring assurance to our heart. No, the ruler of this world is judged. Evil has an expiration date. All right, back to Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 2. And so with these stirring reminders, you know, Peter's kind of going to start pressing this a little bit more, uh, leaning into his confrontational dynamics. <laughs> and starting in verse 10 all the way to verse 17, Peter gets very vocal, very vocal in the way, um, in a way that could almost seem unchristian. Almost appears to be kind of like childish, nah, almost verging on like name-calling and mud-slinging. And I'll let you read it maybe for some good Sabbath afternoon reading <laughs> later today. But here's what's happening. Peter is simply talking straight. He's trying to make sure that what has appeared or what has come in as stealthy, destructive heresies is shown to be what it actually is. And so Peter's straight talk does a couple of things. 
One, it allows us to gather what it is that these false teachers are actually promoting. Um, I don't know, maybe we can just kind of catch some key ideas here, starting in verse 10. In verse 10, it says, And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority, they are presumptuous and self-willed. So he's not just giving like a character sketch of them. Yes, he is talking about their character. He is talking about their heart. But we gather from that what it is that they're promoting amongst God's people. They're promoting walking according to the flesh rather than faith. They're promoting presumptuousness rather than surrender to the Lord. They're promoting uh, being self-willed. You can just follow your heart. Do you follow that? Yeah. And, and so this is what Peter's doing. He's allowing us to gather what they're promoting, but he's also warning us of the danger of even sympathizing with these ideas. Yeah. In fact, in verses 14 and 15, you kind of see the danger of all of this. Verse 14 says, Having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, they have a heart trained in covetous practices. In other words, that they're proficient in this. They've disciplined themselves in being able to, yeah, follow their heart to the extent of walking in sin as if it's not sinful. And this is really something that we, we ought to keep our distance, to, our distance from. In fact, in verse 15, it says, they have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of who? Of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. In other words, these teachers are imitating Balaam's example. And what did Balaam do that was so destructive? He, he, you could say that he was trained in covetousness. He was someone who knew what the way of righteousness was, but he chose to follow his own way anyway. And when he did, it didn't work out for him very well, right? I mean, a donkey tried to stop him, didn't stop him. But even when he got, you know, to the, the precipice of looking over the camp of Israel, he was enlisted to call curses upon God's people. But when he opened his mouth, only blessings could come. Man, I love that. Yeah, God, God not only makes donkeys to talk, he can even make false prophets to talk, apparently. And so here, you know, Balaam was someone who knew what the way of righteousness was, but he chose to do his own way anyway. And when that didn't work out, he went on later to use his influence to lead Israel to immorality. To lead Israel to a state where they could not rely upon the protection of God any longer. He led them into sin. And that's what Peter concludes his chapter with. That just as Balaam leveraged his influence to lead others to a life of sin, this is what these false teachers are doing as well. Starting in verse 18, all the way to 22, this is how he concludes his chapter. It's talking about the destructive influence of these false teachers. And again, Peter is using very, very strong words. Very strong words. Let's start in verse 18. It says, For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness... They allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. Ay, ay, ay. All right. He's using strong words like baiting 
uh, enticing, trapping. He's using these ideas of enslaving others versus having escaped from sin. He's using uh, even this language of uh, the teachers promising liberty, promising liberty, even though it results only in further bondage. Like down in verse 19, while they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. Man. And that, that, by the way, has been a scheme of the enemy ever since the beginning. To make, um, to make our freedom in Christ appear like bondage. And to make the bondage of sin and following ourselves, living for self, appear like liberty. This is a trick of the enemy from the very beginning, and it's going to go through the end of time. But the truth is this, that corruption, sin, living for self, that in itself is bondage. Do you follow me today? That in itself is bondage. What appears to be living free, free to do whatever I want, well, that in itself is being overcome by sin. And it makes me think of, it makes me think of the demoniac in Mark chapter 5. When Jesus and his disciples rode up to the shore of Gennesaret, you know, they, they found someone that nobody could bind, right? The demoniac who had legions of demons within him. The Bible says in Mark chapter 5, no one could bind him, but he was the most enslaved of all men. Sin has this illusion that, yeah, you can be free to do what, what you know, the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Has God not said, has God not said that you can, I mean, did he really limit you here? You can't eat of any tree of the garden, right? He was twisting God's words to make the freedom that we have in God to appear as restriction. Man. And so here at the demoniac, yeah, he was someone that no one could bind, yet yeah, no one could impose their will upon him, but in fact, he was a slave. But praise the Lord, for the end of that story, right? By the end of that story, that man is sitting clothed and in his right mind. All because Jesus came to his shore. Praise God that if the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. Yeah. If the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. In fact, Paul, the Apostle Paul, picks up this language in terms of slavery and freedom in Romans chapter 6. Notice this in verse 6. He says, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. If the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. That freedom, it's found in no one else. Nothing else. And later on in verse 17, Paul makes this same conclusion. He says, but God be thanked that though you were slaves, past tense, though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Saved, not just from danger, but saved to the one who delivers you. Yes. If the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. And this is the, the final word as, as Peter's drawing, kind of landing the plane on this, this argument here. The final word on the fruit, or the final word is really about the fruit of the, the false teacher's ministry, if you want to call it that. Their swelling words of emptiness. 
is essentially that it leaves people worse off than they were before. He quotes from some Proverbs there in verse 22, a dog returning to his own vomit, a sow having washed, letting her wallow in the mire. You see, the possibility of being entangled again, you know, of actually escaping from the corruption that is in the world through lust, right? In chapter 1, verse 3, uh, there is a possibility that once we have experienced grace, there is a possibility of being entangled once again. And that possibility, yes, it's real, and it is a warning. But I want us to know something, that that warning isn't intended to paralyze us with fear or hopelessness. Let me say that again. Yes, it is possible to walk back. It is possible to backslide. It is possible to return to our own vomit. And I don't even like using that. Anyways, but you get it. It is possible. The warning is real. But that warning isn't supposed to paralyze us in fear and hopelessness. Let's see where Peter takes this. Because while it is possible to be entangled again, I don't want us to gloss over the promise and prescription that Peter gives. Let's, let's read it. It's in verse 20. If you're there, go ahead and say, I see it. Okay, I really want you to see this, okay? For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. Okay, that is the reality of the warning. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. But I don't want us to miss that escape is actually possible. Did you see it there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's read it again. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, it is possible to escape the pollutions of the world. How? Through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's it. Here it is. It is possible to escape the pollutions of the world in knowing Jesus. And so here's the stirring reminder that we'll close with. True freedom is found in knowing Jesus. And I hope you understand what I mean. I'm not talking about knowing about him. I'm not talking about knowing where he ministered. I'm not talking about knowing how long he ministered, or even that he came right on time at the fulfillment of certain prophecies. Those are great, but there's a difference between knowing about Jesus and actually knowing Jesus. And if you're wondering, how do I do that? It starts with time. It starts with a willingness. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. There's a God who has done everything to bridge the gap to actually knowing us. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, he is depicted as knocking on the door. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And then here's the condition. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. That's a picture of relationship. And it's conditional, not upon his willingness, because he's already willing. He's already on the door. It's conditional upon our hearing and opening. A choice to say, yes, I want that relationship too. 
And the promise of Jeremiah chapter 24, verse 7. I don't have a slide, but you can write it down. Easy to remember, 24-7. Jeremiah 24, verse 7. And I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall return to me with their whole heart. Friends, do you want that heart today? That comes from a gift, a gift of the God who says, I'm already here. Let me give you a heart to know me. It's not that we need to work at knowing him. Yes, relationships require effort, but this is God's effort, and we simply receive it. So true freedom, it's found in knowing Jesus. So if Peter is pointing us away, he's pointing us away from swelling words of emptiness. Where was that? Verse 18. He's pointing us away from great swelling words of emptiness that entangle us in a bondage that, is, that leaves us worse off than before. He is not only pointing us away from these great swelling words, he's pointing us to the more sure word of prophecy. He's pointing us to the one who is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. He's pointing us to a relationship with Jesus and that in knowing him, we will have true freedom. Oh, what a message. So here's the question. Do you know this Jesus today? Or maybe a better question. Do you want to know this Jesus today? What do we know about him? So far from what we've studied today, well, we know that Jesus is the one who knows how to deliver us from every trouble and affliction, every hurt and addiction. Will you ask him to? What do we know about just this Jesus? Well, he is the one who knows how to destroy sin and when to destroy sin once and for all. He knows how to redeem us from the very presence of sin and all its curses. Will we trust him to do so today? What do we know about this Jesus? We know that we find, if we ever find ourselves bound by sin or even enticed back to that bondage of sin that's, that pretends itself to be liberty, we know that Jesus is the one who sets us free indeed. Amen. That's right. That he's the one who stands at the door of our hearts, knocking and inviting us to know him, knocking and inviting us to a personal, individual relationship with him, and to find that he truly restores our freedom and identity. That we can sit clothed and in our right minds in the presence of Jesus. Will you open the heart of your door to that faithful God today? Amen. Amen. We're going to sing... Uh, great is thy faithfulness. I'll invite our song team up here. But he is faithful, faithful to deliver us from temptation, faithful to destroy sin in his perfect timing. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for being the faithful God, faithful to deliver us, faithful to destroy sin, faithful to grant us freedom in a relationship with you. And we simply just want to say yes. Yes to all that you've made available. Yes to all that you are inviting us to. God, you are faithful. Even when we are unfaithful. Wherever we find ourselves in this journey with you, whether we are bound in sin or whether we are bound in sin again, Lord, we long to know you and to place our lives in your hands today. We pray in Jesus' saving and precious name. Let the family say, amen. amen. amen.